Okay, so I want to continue a multi-week conversation about eschatology. So if you were here last week, you know what the word eschatology means, study of the end times or how we uh, arrange our theology of the end times. So when I start using the words end times, last days, second coming, your mind begins to generate images. Your imagination begins to paint pictures of what you imagine the end will look like. Now, in our tradition, we were taught that uh, in the book of Revelation, the beast takes control of the earth. Seven years of tribulation are unleashed upon planet earth. And especially about the three and a half mark to to the seven mark, it's just really hell on earth is the best way to describe it, just water to blood and hailstones and scorpions and, and monsters and beasts. And immediately when I start talking end times to uh, conservative evangelicals who grew up in the tradition, your mind starts painting pictures of the rapture, the mark of the beast, uh, monsters, plagues, uh, Armageddon, Antichrist. Does that about fit the bill? That's about where your mind goes. And I know that that's ingrained into us because of the hundreds and hundreds of friends that we all have on Facebook and how many times we have seen the words Mark of the Beast invoked in the last 12 months. Stop it now before you look very foolish. Okay, stop it now before you look really, really silly. Now, you have to listen very carefully in these weeks. I challenged you last week to let me test you, to let me push the limits of what you believe. You agreed to that. Uh, You know, at least you've agreed to it by returning this Sunday. Uh, And let me push a little bit and let you wrestle with the text. So you'll hear a lot of controversial things in the the weeks. It's okay. Wrestle with it. Uh, Let the tension make your muscles spiritually a little stronger. Let me begin with just a couple of initial observations. There is no mention of the word Antichrist in the book of Revelation. The word rapture does not occur in a Bible anywhere. Now just with that, I want you to ask yourself, if it's one of the most important things we should be looking for, expecting, if this is the end of the age, then there should be a whole lot of information on it. It should be found all over the text. It should be something that the saints for 2,000 years since Christ have been talking about and focusing on and telling their children about and, and pointing the coming generations to. There should be a lot of tension and a lot of discussion around it if it's the thing that the church was looking for. And I further find this, that Christianity basically has devised entire theological systems, elaborate ones, around eight obscure verses of Scripture. And those theological camps and theological systems that they devised have now divided up the body of Christ. We can put everybody in buckets now. We can put everybody in nice little bins and classify you, you know. We gave labels to the buckets. You're you're premillennialist, you're postmillennialist, you're 
amillennialist. If you've never heard those three words before, I'll talk about those three words next week a little more uh, aggressively. But we basically made labels based on eight obscure verses in the Bible, devised three different theological systems of how the world's going to end, and then we took the Christians and dropped them into those labeled buckets so we could kind of see who friend and foe are. And then we in the modern church have basically dealt with each other in such a way that we've asked other Christians, other believers, to declare, proclaim your label affiliation. Tell us what you are. Tell us the label on your bucket that you're sitting in, and then we'll know which university to send your kids to. Tell us which label you wear on your bucket, and then we'll tell you which churches you should attend. Tell us what the label is on your bucket, and we'll show you which denomination you should raise your right hand and proclaim allegiance to. We've, taught, we've been taught for hundreds of years now in America which labels to properly wear. And it goes on beyond premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial. There are labels like Baptist and Wesleyan and Methodist and Lutheran and Church of Christ and Pentecostal and Bible Church and Catholic and Lutheran and Presbyterian. And again, there's 9,000 flavors of Presbyterian and 9,027 flavors of Baptist. And, and, and it's just very complicated. But the, basically the scheme is, since you know what your label is, then you know what you must believe. It, it looks something like this. Hey, Johnny, tell me where I'm Baptist. Okay, well, if you're Baptist, this is what you believe in. Tell us what your label is, then we'll tell you what you believe. Now, am I the only one in the room, or does that seem backwards? I, I'm a whole lot more interested in what you believe than what your label is, surely. Tell us what you believe, and then we'll all fellowship together and praise God and worship. And what I'm proposing is simply a few little reforms that we approach the Bible with a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit and a fresh opening of our spiritual eyes and we let the Bible determine what we believe, not our label. What a novel idea that would be. Let's open the Bible and see what thus saith the Lord, not what says the denominational headquarters or not what says some other group on the internet. Now, when we know the Bible and we know what the Bible's saying, then we'll know what we believe. Listen, when you can clearly see what God's saying, all you have to then decide is yes or no. God says this, and then you just have to decide, do I align with it or not? Will I agree with God or will I rebel against God? Now, again, it's not quite that black and white. I get that. But my concept is let's go to the Scripture first See what it says, then we'll know what to believe, and when we know what we believe, then we'll know how to behave. That's how simple it is. We know what we believe, then we'll know who we are, then we'll know how to behave. Okay, so let me zoom out a little bit with the big telescope here for a minute and give you the 30,000-foot the view. And as I zoom out, I want to I posit what I think is the larger issue it's not about what is your eschatology. I, I want to deal with bigger issues. It's not about where you are on the woman issue. There's bigger issues. It's not what you believe about something down here in the weeds. Let's zoom out and look at the bigger problems the contemporary church is facing. And I think, if you'll let me pause it, I think the bigger problem 
the church is facing is we were told that we must read the Bible, but no one taught us how to read the Bible. And I think this is the problem that the church is dealing with now. And it's not like for the last year, it's like for the last hundred years, maybe the last few hundred years. We've been making converts, not disciples. We've been doing evangelism, not discipleship, and there's a difference. You've heard me just wear you thin on that for 10 years. We've been told, read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible, but no one has slowed down and sat down and, and, and looked across the table at us and said, and here's how you read the Bible. One of the most confusing practices I've participated in in the Christian church is to give a Bible to a new believer or to give a Bible to a, to a 12-year-old child and tell them to read it without first telling them where to read, without first telling them how to interpret what they're reading, or giving them a framework to understand what they're about to see and how to interpret what they're going to read. And I think just handing a Bible to somebody and saying, God wants you to read it, is incredibly irresponsible. And I am guilty. So I'm not yelling at you. I'm preaching this one right at me. I'm incredibly guilty. For example, do you know what's contained in the opening chapters of that book? I've read it. Let me give you a quick survey. The protagonist, the good guys, okay? The good guys in the story are carrying out genocide on other nations, killing men, women, and children, and eradicating entire civilizations. Right in the opening pages. The people in this story, as it opens, the good guys are taking multiple wives, some as gifts, some in arranged marriages, and some by force. What you're reading as they invade other nations it says, if you find the woman attractive, you can just take her as a captive. Bring her into your house, go through purification ritual, and I think you can figure out all the rest. We're presented with sexual assault right out of the gate, and the person who's raped is told now she needs to be forced to marry her rapist. Sound like good policy that you want to implement? They're enforcing the death penalty for all kinds of sexual sins Abraham pimps out his wife to another ruler to a king in Genesis 12 because he's scared for his own life seven books into the story a man offers his virgin daughter as a human sacrifice another man takes his maid chops her into 12 pieces with a sword puts each chunk into a box and FedEx it to the 12 tribes of Israel. Lot offers a sexually charged mob. Let me go slow here for you. Lot offers a sexually charged mob the use of his two daughters for the night so that his two house guests can get a peaceful night's sleep. Have you ever read that and just wanted to go wash your eyes? And say, how in the world is this in the Bible? Now, I just lay that out there for you because I don't have time to go through the whole Bible. That's just the first smattering pages. 
What I'm saying to you this morning is having read it, I would not recommend putting it into the hands of anyone without some careful direction and supervision. Reading the Bible in isolation could prove disastrous. You say, well, how do we get religion so messed up? Because people read in isolation, and when you read it, you're like, okay, well, then evidently I'm the coming of Messiah, and I need to go plant the Branch Davidians, and I need to shoot up the FBI. And You just come up with crazy ideas when you read it in isolation. This is why there is community. So here, here's the bigger problem, I think. If we're going to encourage people to read the Bible, and if you're wondering, we are going to encourage people to read the Bible. We are going to put Bibles in people's hands and encourage them to read it. If you're going to encourage people to read the Bible, and we are, then we need to disciple those people into the Word so that they can make sense of what they are reading. To do otherwise is careless and will certainly lead to confusion. Many of our theological errors that we're going to talk about this week and next week come from a direct result of us having never been taught how to read the Bible. And because we weren't taught how to read the Bible, we've opened ourselves up to wrong interpretation and opened ourselves up to fall into error. Now, I told you last week, we're not going to gripe about the problems, we're going to give solutions, okay? So I want to propose four solutions to the problem that I've just articulated. Solution number one is in the upcoming semesters, I would challenge you to participate in modules that will be offered here at Cornerstone on Wednesday night to teach you how to read Bible. There's a simple way. Uh, I have at least three incredible books that will really, really challenge you. And they're written on different levels. I don't know if these courses need to build as a 101 201, 301 kind of mentality, but I would challenge you to learn how to read the Bible, and we will help you with that. Uh, last week, someone came to me and said, I'm a new believer, I'm sorting out the Trinity right now. By the way, if you sort out the Trinity, you've got about the hardest doctrine there is sorted out. I'll tell you that. Uh, but I'm just, he said, I'm thinking through Jesus is actually God, and, and, all, and the Holy Spirit is God, and and the Holy Spirit's in me, and Jesus died for me, and he's working through that problem. And he, he said to me, uh, Pastor, what do you recommend that I read that will help me in, in my growth? And I want to answer his question with number two here. Start, not, not an external book, but start reading the Bible with an app called Read Scripture. Read Scripture. There is an app you can download. It's called Read Scripture. If you're not in a Bible reading plan, or if you're struggling in your Bible reading plan, or if you're reading and you have no idea what you're reading, download Read Scripture. Uh, it's produced by people we trust, and it will take a video and say, listen to this video about the creation. Okay, read Genesis 1 through 3. Okay, listen to this video. Okay, then listen and read. Listen and read. Listen and read. Listen and read. And it'll help you build a framework It'll help you put lenses on through which you can see what's being done in the text and understand how to process it. Thirdly, I would challenge every Cornerstone member, every one of you, to uh, watch Bible Project videos. The Bible Project are incredible, wonderful people. 
who their goal is to help us understand the Bible. Uh, let me just, let's just do a quick survey, okay? How many of you have ever watched a Bible Project video? Okay, so you're, you're right at home here. And if you couldn't lift your hand, the rest of the congregation's got a head start on you, okay? I would even go a step further. It, I would challenge every, every one of you, you know, I know you come home and you're exhausted and you don't want to think, but maybe at least one night a week, don't go to Netflix. Instead, go to the Bible Project and watch a video. It's kind of like, you know, you have to schedule yourself to go to the gym before you can then, you know, eat a piece of cake. I would almost use this mentality on yourself and say, you know, every once in a while, I need to make myself go, go watch something beneficial and help, and then I can turn my brain off a little bit and then coast for a while. Uh, maybe while you're eating dinner, maybe this is, this is what you do with the, the, you know, you turn the TV on in the background and while we're eating, the family's watching a, a Bible project video. And I would start with their video series on how to read the Bible, how to understand the Bible, uh, what the Bible's all about, how, how, what kind of literature is the Bible, be a great starting point. And then fourthly, I would challenge the congregation to do this. I would say be a part of a discipleship group, be a part of a D group. Uh, because in a discipleship group, you will not be in isolation reading scripture and studying scripture. You'll be with other uh, Christians, hopefully someone more mature than you are in the faith. And as you're in that discipleship group, it gives you a place to ask questions. They won't always know the answer, and that's fine. We don't expect any uh, group leader to know the answers to everything. Certainly, I don't know the answers to everything. But here's what I tell my own discipleship groups when they ask questions that are, you know, beyond my understanding. I say, give me a week or two, and I'll come back with an answer for that. And I get in community with other leaders and I find the answer to the question. So there's four good answers. There are links to every one of these in YouVersion notes this morning. So all my sermon notes are put into YouVersion. The points, the things, the scriptures, whatever you see on the screen is in YouVersion Bible app. And so you will find those links in YouVersion. And we'll try later this week or next week to put a resources tab up on the, the app if we can and the website where these things are linked. So let me come back now. There's the big problem and there's four answers to it. And I'm going to keep coming back to this problem in the coming months and we'll, we'll keep working through this. Let me circle back to the Apostles' Creed now. For the next few weeks, we're looking very intently at one particular phrase where it says, He will come to judge the living and the dead. Talking of Jesus, this is a Jesus paragraph now. Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead and the dead so let me see if i can recap let me use a simple simple chart and let's talk about christmas first because christmas so in christianity the, the lingo is what's tough the first coming of christ is also known as the first advent it's also known as christmas okay the first coming of christ the arrival the advent the the incarnation is another synonym god in a body coming to through through a human this is Christmas, first arrival of Jesus on planet earth as a human. What he did on the earth is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You would call that the gospel, the story of Jesus, the good news of what Jesus did for us. His life story is what he did on earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of course, we know he was crucified in the end. We've already been through this. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, uh, was crucified, died, was buried, descended, to the dead he rose again the third day that all happens and then we talked about in acts chapter number one he ascended up into heaven the ascension the ascension we believe jesus ascended up to heaven where he sits on the right hand of the father okay 
and that's described metaphorically in coming in the clouds, sitting on the right hand of power, enthroned. There's all kinds of Bible synonym language for this. He ascended and he sits on the throne of the universe. And last week talked about last week we talked about he is in charge right now. Right now he's sitting on the throne of the universe. Now the worldly kings are still in rebellion, but he's sitting on the throne nonetheless of the universe and he is in charge now the statement we have in front of us is he will come to judge the living and the dead one more time andy there he comes all right return of christ now here's what we actually believe that christmas this was the coming of jesus christ he died was buried rose again he ascended to heaven and we believe he will come again notice now we got a heaven and earth unified over here and we're just trying to illustrate that for you. Heaven and earth are coming together now. Because when Christ returns to this earth, something big is happening. Something very serious. Something the Bible is going to be talking a lot about. So, with this in mind, let me launch forward. Uh, scholars have identified more than 1,800 references to the second coming of Jesus Christ in the Bible. That's a whole bunch, okay? Let me just say that. That's a whole bunch. To put it in other words, in the New Testament, at least one in every 30 verses mentions, talks about, alludes to the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. Let me just share quickly a couple of those verses. Revelation 1-7, look, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the people on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. This is the opening to the book of the Revelation. Jude said it this way. Jude goes all the way back to Genesis. It said way back there. They've been looking for, the, for this moment forever. They've been looking for God to send a king to make this mess right on planet earth for all of creation since the fall of Adam and Eve. And Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy one. Notice the next verse, the words in verse 15. Two. So the Apostles' Creed says this. We believe that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And that's where they're getting this language because this is what the Apostles taught. That Jesus would come and he's going to judge. He's going to set it all right. He's going to right the wrongs. He's going to fix what's broken. And there it's expressed as judge the, the living and the dead. The book of Hebrews, especially chapter 10, which is famous for uh, people not neglecting to attend church physically as you have done this morning in the room. This is really an encouragement from, from his, the passage is famous for this. Don't neglect worshiping together in person. Hebrews 10. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. In other words, hold on to your faith, folks. Don't let go of it. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds. And part of the reason we come together like this is to have our hearts stirred up and to have our emotions soothed. And to have our hearts filled with encouragement. And to have our, our good works stirred up so that we can walk out these doors and live for the next six days as a, a, a kingdom representative of Christ. And have our batteries, if it were, recharged. Verse 25 says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And I just want to, I haven't really said a word since COVID began. More than a year, year and a half ago. 
I've never told anyone you have to be at church. God demands it of you. Your health is important. And I want to love you as I love my own family, okay? But there is something unique and moving and energetic about being in the room. And it can't be replicated through the television. And that's all I want to say about that. You do whatever you need to do. But the scripture says, don't give up meeting one another as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the capital D day approaching. What day is that? They explain in verse 37, for in just a little while, in just a little while, ladies and gentlemen, he who is coming will come and he will not delay. They're talking about the coming of Christ and as you see the days hastening towards his coming, God's people need to be vigilant to community together. This is how we maintain a stiff upper lip. This is how we maintain encouragement. This is how we care for one another. This is how we let the Spirit fill and energize our lives freshly week by week. Colossians says it this way, chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Now, he's talking in a spiritual way. You died and were raised with Christ through your salvation. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Well, where is Christ? Seated at the right hand of God. That's exactly what Acts told us too. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Well, there's not much about our lives that's too glory-filled, is there? We live pretty mundane you know, kind of lives. We have to put deodorant on every morning and wash our stinky feet every night and our lives are just a little bit humble, aren't they? The Bible says when Christ appears, you're going to appear with him glorified, exalted, incorruptible. Now, let me, let me deal with literature for just a moment. In literature, plot climax is the resolution of the problem that the story's been developing. The climax is the plot resolution. The story's been saying, here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem. The villain's got the girl tied to the railroad tracks. The dragon's coming and he's stormed the castle. Here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem. At the climax of the story, at the plot climax, suddenly the problem is about to be resolved now. The epic battle, the big thing is about to happen that is going to fix the problem that we've been reading about the return of Jesus Christ to this earth is the solution the return of Christ involves the resurrection of our bodies the renewal of planet earth and it brings in the new heaven and the new earth now with passage after passage one in every 30 verses speaking about the return of Christ strangely enough our tradition has turned its focus disproportionately to only two of those passages. And our tradition has focused most of its end times discussions centered on two passages, one from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, two verses, and one from Romans chapter 20, <clears throat> six verses. Eight verses <clears throat> in your Bible 
out of so many verses, eight verses are driving most of the conversation that you grew up with in your tradition. Now, now I say that because that's a generalization. Can, can we take a survey? Are y'all okay with that? How many of you in the room grew up non-Baptist? Are you okay, non-Baptist? Do y'all see that's about 30% of the room? How many of you grew up Southern or Independent Baptist? Yeah, that's, you're just barely above the other group in that very unscientific survey right there, okay? So what I want to say is I, I refer to our tradition because even those who were outside of the Baptist tradition, you grew up either usually a conservative Pentecostal, Church of God, Church of Christ. Um, so, so this is like the whole Church of Christ section in it. This is the Church of Christ section, the Catholic section. You know, I mean, the, the rebels are all over here. Uh, listen, but we, but we grew up in different traditions. And even though I say our tradition, it's because most of you come from a conservative evangelical background. Okay? I do want to pause long enough to really say, for those of you who just grew up Baptist, you need to understand that at least half of this room did not grow up like you. Okay? And at least half of this room does not have the same eschatological viewpoint you have. And I want to go one step further. They may be right and you may be wrong. Now I just want to say that. Or they may be wrong and you may be right. We'll work it out, okay? But I just want to say, when you come to church, you tend to think that everybody here agrees on every little minuscule in the weeds detail and we all have the same viewpoint. We do not all have the same viewpoint. I want to keep saying this out loud. You know what we all agree on? That Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Can I get a witness right there? We all believe that. Now, how that all plays out and all of those ups and downs and sideways and antichrists and beats and marks and, and chains and dragons and monsters, now that's a whole other discussion. Because I can guarantee you we will not all see eye to eye on all of those things. And so sometimes people will say to me, well, so pastor, do I need to find a different church then because I don't agree about this or that? Oh, not at all, not at all. You say, well, I need to go to a church maybe where everybody agrees. They don't agree, they just won't talk about it. At least we're trying to be honest about it, okay? Uh, what, what I'm saying to you is, let me say it a better way. This is a family discussion. This is a family discussion. Family rarely agrees on everything. If you want to test me in about 30 minutes, ask your wife, what do you want for lunch? Okay? Well, family rarely agrees on everything. And all I want to say to you is, family discussions, we don't have to agree on everything. We're a family. And that trumps other things. We are a family that believes the Lord will physically, visibly return to this earth. That's what we agree on. King Jesus is coming. Now, all the little minuscule things are kind of a fun arm wrestling thing between family members, okay? And we can go to each other and we can have some fun with each other and, and that's all fine. But I want you to keep it, the discussion within that context. It's a family discussion. We all believe Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, I say all that as a setup to, I want to show you something. And I'm not beating up anybody I'm just trying to be transparent. You guys know my tradition is Baptist that I was raised in. I struggle to know if I'm Baptist today or not, and I'm very open about that. Not that I would throw them to the curve. I have many, many wonderful, wonderful Baptist friends, brothers, co-workers, pastors, you know, uh, 
What I'm worried about is they may kick me to the curb. That's really what I, more the reality of it. I don't intend to sever any relationships. I, I love my Baptist friends, my Methodist friends. One of my best friends in my secular career was a Lutheran that sat a couple of cubes away. We were very, very respectful of each other and loved each other. And all I want to say is I don't want to kick anybody to the curb. I just want to kind of pull the curtain back and, and show you the wizard, okay? Uh, this is from the official uh, website of the Southern Baptist Convention. This is the statement of faith from this is the official statement of faith from the Southern Baptist Convention. And I want to show you Article 10, Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message. And if you say, Pastor, I just don't understand what you're all worked up about. This is Article 10 of the Southern Baptist Convention's Baptist Faith and Message. I'm going to read it to you. Can you guys see that? God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. Where they're batting a thousand right now. It's going to go off the rails though here. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. Hell is not the place of everlasting punishment. The lake of fire is. And death and hell were delivered up to the lake of fire. Hell is an Anglicized version of the Greek word Hades, which means realm of the dead. You know what the creed says? Jesus descended to the realm of the dead. Do you want to put Jesus in hell suffering because of his sins? Your loved ones in purgatory working their way out? All I want to say is it's subtle, but I just... It sticks in my throat right there. The unsaved are not consigned eternally to hell. They're consigned eternally to something described as the lake of fire. Hell and death and all cast. Anyway, let me go a little bit further. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. I want to read this sentence again. I want you to paint a mental picture of what's about to happen. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven, eternity in heaven with the Lord. Is that the story the Bible's telling? Now, I'm confronted with this teaching, Article 10. This is the only article on eschatology, really on end times in the Baptist official dogma. And I'm concerned with either it's carelessly worded or not clearly worded or biblically incorrect at the worst. What imaginations are evoked in your mind when I say to you the righteous in the resurrected bodies go to heaven to spend eternity with Jesus? You have images of people getting resurrected and flying away to heaven to live somewhere out there in heaven for eternity with Jesus, don't you? Because that's the word picture that's just been painted. Now, people ask, listen, it's a steady stream as old-time old Baptists come visit our church. They're new to the community. God bless you. Welcome. We're glad you're here. And they come and visit, and they're like, well, that was good this morning, but why don't you have that worship leader play, play some of them oldies? <laughs> Maybe an oldie like this. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair when the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore and the roll is called up yonder 
me give you another verse. On that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and the glory of his resurrection share when his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the and the roll is called up yonder I'll be there. The reason we won't sing them is because they're heresy. The Bible is not telling you a story that you're going to get resurrected and fly to the other shore to live forever. This is like something you would see on the Sistine Chapel with saints in clouds with little naked baby angel cherubs on the top of a, of a cathedral. Are y'all with me? I hope I haven't lost anybody because you're asking yourself, but wait, I was taught we all fly away to live with Jesus in heaven for eternity. That is not the story the Bible's telling. It's telling a different story with a different plot climax and a different resolution. So how do we bring our beliefs about the return of Christ back in line with a biblical text? Now, I received three different questions this week. It's not surprisingly at all. All three questions have to do with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, one of the eight verses that all of us always go to when we're talking about the return of the Lord. So it's the rapture passage, or is it? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The questions are awesome. <clears throat> I'm not berating the questionnaires. They've asked it spot on, the exact right question to ask. But I want to read you all three questions so you can see where the mind of your peers is and probably where your own mind is as well. Here's question one. Pastor... In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is that making a reference to the rapture? Will those people who aren't dead experience an ascension up into heaven similar to what we saw Jesus do in Acts chapter number 1? Please provide some clarity on what Paul is describing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Question 2 was this. As a parent, one of my greatest fears is that the rapture will happen, my entire family will be gone, and my two-year-old daughter will be left here all alone. Will she be raptured if she hasn't reached the age of understanding? Well, now there's a question. Is this Baptist doctrine of the rapture like the, the scariest imaginable version of Home Alone? You, you know what I'm saying? We're all, everybody's gone and then there's your like, here's your like six-year-old saying, okay, I know how to make frozen waffles. You know, uh, what do they do? Listen, you need to think through these texts. These are real-life questions right now. This is awesome. Question three was this. I was raised believing in a pre-trib rapture. Convinced the Left Behind movie was how it all goes down. But while reading and studying, my belief in the pre-trib rapture completely fell apart. Now I'm not sure there even is a rapture in this sense or if one happens at all. From our mortal death until Jesus returns, there seems to be a whole lot of going up and coming down that no longer makes sense to me. I lean towards the belief that believers will go through the tribulation and will not be swooped out of it with the knowledge that heaven and earth will once again be re reunited and that we will spend eternity with God on this earth. How does a rapture narrative even fit in? Well, there's a good question. Now, when we think about the first and second coming of Jesus, we have been programmed to think in Christmas cards and movies. You've seen enough wise men kneeling at a manger that you now think wise men came to the manger. Jesus was two years old at least before the wise men got to Bethlehem. But you can't talk Christians out of it. 
They asked, Herod asked the wise men, when did you first see the star announcing the birth? Two years ago. He came into the house and they saw the young child, Jesus, and bowed down before him and presented their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they worshipped him. But you can't talk Christians out of that. They're going to put wise men at the manger every time. Why? Why? You tell me why. Because it's the picture you've got in your head from a Christmas card Aunt Mabel sent you. You saw it in a coloring book in Sunday school. Somebody, you know what I'm saying? It's in, the picture is in here and you've got baggage that's not theologically correct. But how do you deal with the baggage now? You see, baggage is a real problem. You've got to figure out how to jettison that and get the right imprint put upon it. We've seen now, we've read the Left Behind, how many of you have read Left Behind book or saw the movie? See, baggage. How are you ever going to get those images out of your head? It's a real question. How are you going to deprogram yourself? So, here's what's happened, and I'll really deal with this next week. We're so familiar with the scenes now depicting fictional views of how something might go down, but now the images themselves have become the reality in our mind. The, the fake image, the false image, is now the reality in your mind of how this goes down, and it's not, it's not real, it's not true. Now, the trouble with proof texting, taking two verses from 3 Thessalonians chapter 4 and building your entire end times viewpoint on two verses, I mean, already, the way I'm saying this, you should think this is a scary proposition, okay? Open to a lot of error. You take two verses out of 1 Thessalonians and you say, well, see, here's what it says. It's called proof texting. And proof texting rips from its text and never asks the important question, what is the context of this passage? So let me help you. What is the context? What question is Paul answering from the Thessalonians that he takes pen and paper and begins to pen what we call the rapture passage? What question is Paul answering? Here is the question. The Thessalonians have asked Paul what has happened to believers who have died before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is one of the earliest written books. Jesus died, rose again, went to heaven. They're all expecting him to return. But in the next 10, 20, 30 years, people began to die who were believers. And now the believers are becoming disheartened, discouraged, upset, mournful, sorrowful, and they're asking Paul, wait a second, we know he's coming and he's going to set up his kingdom and make it right. But what about our loved ones who didn't last long? They couldn't hold on long enough for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I want you to see. They're asking the opposite question you're asking. They are asking, they're not asking, what about we who are alive at the coming of Christ? They're asking about believers who have died before the coming of Christ? Did the believers who died before Christ's return somehow miss out on the kingdom, miss out on all this glorious ruling and reigning with Christ and the new heaven and the new earth? Let me read the passage quickly. Brothers and sisters, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. And whenever you hear sleep, it means dead in this context, okay? That sleep and death. So that you do not grieve 
like the rest of mankind that has no hope. For we, now that's a, this is a, this is a creedal statement. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. This is a creedal statement Paul is making. He's saying we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Are you with me so far? And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word. This is an authoritative statement. According to the word of the Lord. We tell you that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. means they're going to get a jump start on you. 16, here are the two controversial verses. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, they ask the question, what about our loved ones who died before the Lord could return? What has happened to them? And Paul now comforts them and gives, we believe, we believe in the resurrection, we believe in the return of Christ, we believe that your loved ones will, will be there with Christ when he returns. They, have, they will already be resurrected and then we will be resurrected and he will return this is a collage everybody know what a collage is this is a scrapbook of images from the old testament and our problem is we don't know the old testament so when the new testament guys are talking old testament it escapes us paul is like using one-liners from the Old Testament, images, collages from the Old Testament, and going pop, 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 and just laying them down on the page and saying, see, 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 this is going to happen, this is going to, and he's using a collage from the Old Testament, first of all, he's using images from a style of writing called Jewish apocalyptic, and thirdly, he is using a historical example uh, uh, from history, from a cultural first century emperor returning to a colony. Let, let me show you. Paul's mixed three metaphors together. The metaphors come from Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is Sinai. This is where God came, Yahweh descended down on top of the mountain and started talking audibly to the children of Israel. Do you remember that? We did it a few weeks ago. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Paul is evoking when God shows up, you'll know it. There will be the cloud, the trumpet, the earth will shake, you know, the fire, the, the, the melting of the elements. It'll be cataclysmic. You, you won't have to ask, gee, has anybody seen Jesus lately? Jesus echoed the same thing. When I return, you'll know. And if people secretly say, look, he's come, he's in Waco, or look, he's come, he's in Idaho, believe it not. Okay? These are false Christs, because when Christ comes, you'll know, trust me. It'll be a big enough deal that you'll all know. And now Paul's using Yahweh on Sinai as images to help the minds of the readers understand when God shows up, lightning, thunder, clouds, trumpets. Paul then uses an image from Psalm 47. Let me read it to you. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is awesome, the great King over all the earth. Verse 5 says this. God has ascended 
to where, pray tell? Let me read it for you. To a throne. God has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid the shouting and the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praise to our King. Sing His praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a psalm of praise. For God reigns over the nations. God is seated on His holy throne. That's called a psalm of ascent. That's a song you sing as you go up to worship in the temple. Where are we going? We're going up to meet with God who sits on the throne of the... That's the song you sing. Now, Paul's taking numbers. He's taking a psalm of ascent. Verse, uh, uh, psalm 40, uh, 47, which refers to Yahweh uh, uh, being worshipped. It's a metaphor that's being applied to Jesus in the Gospels. He shall come on clouds. He comes with the clouds. You will see him in the clouds of glory. And now that's going to be applied to the Christians as well. Now he takes Daniel 7, jams it all together. Do you know what's in Daniel 7? Let me read it for you. In Daniel 7, here's what it says. Then the sovereignty, that's a Lord, that's a king. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over. To whom are the kingdoms handed, Cornerstone? To the people that are holy, the holy people of God. They get the kingdoms. It's not Jesus that rules alone. You're going to rule and reign with him as well. Now, here's what Paul's describing. Do you see it? When he appears, your loved ones will appear with him. The dead in Christ will be with him raised. He will come with them. He's not just writing this as if God's showing him a movie. Paul is looking at the Old Testament saying... Here's what it looks like, and Paul is building a collage from the Old Testament. Just as Jesus was vindicated in his ascension, as he told the high priest, you will see me sitting on the throne in the clouds of glory at the right hand of the Father. Smack, they slapped Jesus and began to spit on him. Why? Because he had just told him, I am God. I am the Lord, and I am going to sit on my throne, and I will be vindicated. Now Paul says, it's not just Jesus that will be vindicated, but it's suffering Christians that will also be vindicated, because you too, they too who have suffered, will be seated on thrones, ruling and reigning with him. And then lastly, Paul takes a third image, and he takes the image of a visiting emperor. In his day, that would be Nero Caesar. He takes the image of a Caesar... And he says, and if a king came to a city, uh, listen, Caesar comes to Thessalonica. What do y'all think that scene would look like? What would it look like if an emperor, by the way, in the kingdom, the emperor in the Roman kingdom, the imperial cult worshipped them as God. What would it look like if the emperor shows up in Podunk Hall or Thessalonica at one of the colony headquarters. Do you think the citizens of the country would say, Yo, Nero, what's up? You're late. No, 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 no. Claudia and Elijah used to tell me stories coming out of communism. They said when the dictator would come to town, even if it was the dead of winter, we would go, they would pass out apples and, and yarn and we would go tie the apples in the trees. 
so that even if he came in the dead of winter, it would look beautiful and prosperous as if anybody believed those apples actually grew in the dead of winter. We would line the streets, and the people would sing songs about the great leader of the country, and everybody would be dressed in their best. Do you see a vision in your mind right now of Palm Sunday? Do you see a vision in your mind of what I tried to describe last week when Jesus ascended? What do you think that looked like when heaven received the risen Christ to sit on the throne of the universe? <laughs> do you think that was a pretty big deal with a few trumpets and banners? Yeah, I think that was a, a complete a blowout that happened. This is what Paul is describing. He's saying if the king comes to visit Thessalonica, this is what it would look like. The citizens would go out and meet the king who is coming. And they would be shouting and trumpets and fanfare. And everyone would go out to meet the emperor. And then they would escort the emperor right back into the city. Now I feel like I'm losing you. Stay with me. Stay mentally sharp right here. If Caesar comes to Thessalonica, what will we do? We'll all dress in our best and go line the roadway. And as he comes, we're going to wave the SPQR flag, you know, hail Rome, hail Caesar. And we're going to go out to meet him in the open country outside of the city. And then what? We'll welcome him right back into the city. Does that make sense? That's exactly the picture that Paul has painted. Paul's image of meeting the Lord in the air mirrors this image. He's saying at the return of Christ, the dead in Christ will be raised, the living will be transformed in a resurrection, the earth will be renewed, and we will, we, we will welcome the Lord, and we will then, dot, 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 immediately turn right back around and set up the kingdom on earth. Not fly away to heaven so that they can call the roll present that is not the story the bible's telling the story the bible's telling is if there is a rapture then it's really quick you go out to meet him and you bring him right back in when jesus appears it results in a new world jesus see the creeds don't say and we believe jesus will return and then go back and then return and then go back and then return and then this. We don't believe Satan will be crushed and then let go. And then crushed and then let go. And that's not what creedal Christianity taught. It taught that Jesus will return. And then what? Resurrected. All of us. And then what? Renewed earth. And then what? Judgment. And then what? New heavens and new earth. Here we go. It's on just like that. When Jesus appears in glory, here's what the text is saying. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear then you will appear with him in glory. Let me read you another, 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, we are now children of God right now. We're children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him. So when Jesus shows up, you're transformed. That's without a doubt. You will be like him for you will see him as he is. When Christ shows up, see, we're not waiting for signs. We're not waiting for Israel. We're not waiting for the mark of the beast. We're not waiting for this. We're not waiting for that. All we're waiting for is Jesus. 
You can take all the other complications out of the equation. There's not X, Y, Z and a thousand other variables. There is just, we are waiting for Jesus to appear. And when he returns, he will make all things right. Now, remember, as I read 1 Thessalonians, it will be called up together to meet the Lord there, and so shall we ever be. Here's the question I have for you. So shall we ever be in the clouds? Or so shall we ever be with the Lord? Which does it say? You see, you want to take it literal and say, see, we were with him in, in the clouds. No, that's the Sistine Chapel you're thinking about. That's just a Christmas card. And it's got your head thinking wrong. You will not live literally in clouds for the rest of your eternity, floating around, playing a harp. I could think of nothing more boring. Nothing is more unappealing to me than sitting away in a rocking chair on a cloud. I can think of nothing less appealing. Am I the only one? I can think of nothing less enticing uh, to woo me to, to, to be a follower of Christ than that picture. No, it doesn't ring true, and you know it doesn't ring true. And Paul said, we will forever be with the Lord. Let me read you one more verse. I'm going to wrap this thing. 1 Thessalonians 4, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Because we believe in his resurrection, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. The question is, bring them where? If Jesus is going to bring your loved ones in resurrected bodies, bring them where? Is the question. Bring them where? Where is Jesus bringing your loved ones to? Right here. You say, well, I want to fly away and live in heaven. Well, you'll be lonely because nobody's going to be there. Heaven's coming to earth. (laughs) Jesus is coming here. You say, well, I'm going to go see my loved ones. Your loved ones are getting a new body and they're going to show up. Right here. In the same way that God previewed at the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus come forth, blam, there's their brother right there. Your loved ones are coming here in resurrected bodies. What you're reading about in the New Testament is not an exodus from planet earth. It is an invasion of planet earth by the redeemed to rule with their king. That's what you're reading. And it's precisely this theology that brought comfort to their hearts and gave them enough encouragement to live through persecution and to stay on mission. Now, I know this is a lot to digest on a Sunday morning. Listen, you may believe there is a rapture as you were taught in your tradition. Okay. If you're right and there's a rapture this week, you win. But we all win too who don't believe in it because we're going to be right there with you. Are you with me? And listen, if there is no rapture this week, And Jesus comes instead and there is a resurrection of the dead and the living and a renewal of planet earth and heaven and earth unite and the the new kingdom begins. Then I'm right, but you win anyway because you're here with me. See, this is why it's a family discussion. (laughs) Because whoever is right on how it plays out is not the big deal. The big deal is that it's going to play out. Now, I'm always looking for outcomes. Outcomes are very important to me. In other words, if, if your theology lets you live a certain incorrect way, then I think you got bad theology. That, that's all I'm saying. Good theology demands that we live a certain way. And if your theology lets you trash the planet, ignore the suffering of Afghan Christians, be cold-hearted towards immigrants, neglect the care of your body, then I think your theology is bad. 
Because I think good theology causes us to shine as lights in darkness. I think good theology calls us to live a kingdom ethic in front of the lost world. I think good theology causes us to stay on mission even in the face of persecution. And this morning we're not looking to escape from earth to heaven. We are waiting from heaven to come to earth. I'm not ready to fly away and be in the kingdom of God. I am in the kingdom of God and I am praying, Lord, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And while we're down here complaining about our politicians, we are not waiting for better kings to show up or for better politicians to make this world right or for better political parties to get all the problems worked out. It's never going to happen. We're waiting for the king of kings to come and set this world right. We are not leaving this world in what would amount to a capitulation of this world to Satan. We've come too far to hand the planet Satan. What we are doing is we are colonizing earth for Jesus and we're waiting for the resurrection because Jesus is going to return and he's going to set this world right. Right. 